Martin. Great to see you all. I'll pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had this term to learn from this book of 1 Thessalonians. And Father, especially we pray for the way it has encouraged us to wait for our Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that that might be true of us, that we are people living, ready for Jesus to return, knowing that our salvation is certain. And so as we look at this last part of the book tonight, we pray that again, just like you have all term, you will encourage us and challenge us as your word speaks to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, uh, something very exciting happened. Uh, It was uh, uh, Rick and Natani, two of our MTSs, they preached their first ever sermons today. There you go. Did anyone hear them preach? How'd they go, Troy? Great. There you go. That's all you need to know. No. Uh, But it made me think this week of the the first sermon I ever preached. Uh, I was 21 years old. Uh, and I mentioned to the minister at my church, a very small church, there was one minister there, I mentioned uh, to him I was thinking of going to more college, uh, and he said, well, why don't you preach a sermon? And before you know it, I found myself preaching on Easter Sunday uh, on Romans 7, of all passages. So if you know your Bibles, you can look it up later on, but uh, Romans 7 is probably the hardest passage in the whole Bible, I think. Uh, but you get the idea. But anyway, I worked on it for weeks. he gave give me a couple of months to notice. He, I worked on it for weeks. I met with him a little while before and uh, I went through the sermon and it went for two hours and he said, you've got 20 minutes, you've got to, get, you've got to cut it down. Uh, I don't know how long Natani went for this morning. But anyway, um, uh, so anyway, I, tr- I tried to, I thought, though, all of this is such great stuff and I've worked so hard on it, I can't get rid of it, you know. And so anyway, I went back and I had an hour and he said, you've got 20 minutes. And so anyway, I thought, well, I just can't get rid of anything, it's so important. So I came up with a two-fold solution. Uh, first part of the solution was I decided I would just speak really, really fast, uh, sort of like Alvin and the Chipmunks, you know, when they speed it up two or three times and you just end up high-pitched and squealing at people, so that was the first part. And then the second part is, I thought, once I get to 20 minutes, all I'll do is just list out all these dot points of things people need to think about. Uh, and anyway, I am so glad that no one here got to hear that sermon. I'm very glad that many of you weren't alive when I preached that sermon. Uh, I don't think anyone learned anything that night other than don't let a 21-year-old guy with no experience preach on that passage. But there was one man in the second row, and I hadn't even got to open up your Bibles to page 984, and he was just asleep like this. And, um, and I think he learnt more than anyone else that night. But anyway, now some of you might think I haven't progressed very far since then in my preaching, but uh, hopefully I've learned a little bit since then. But as we were at the end of 1 Thessalonians, come with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, I sort of think the Apostle Paul had the same problem as he closed this letter. He, he's taught all this great doctrine about the coming of the Lord Jesus and then it's sort of like he f- realised, I have to finish up, I've got all these things I want to say and so he just sort of like a shotgun, bang, 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 all these encouragements, all these exhortations that in other parts of the New Testament he takes chapters to sort of spell out and talk about but here he just does it in this, this sort of list uh, and what that means is you could preach for two hours on every one of these verses, which I'm not going to do tonight, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, I'm just going to deal with a few of the main points Paul makes in this close to the letter, and I've drawn them together under three headings related to the theme of love. So if you take out your outline, you'll see the three headings. And the first is, love those who lead you. So look at verse 12. It says, Now we ask you, brothers, 
to give recognition to those who labour among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. It's actually a really hard sort of topic to preach on when you're the minister of the church you're preaching to. I think, as I thought about during the week, I thought I should have got the bishop to preach on this when he was here last week. Uh, Because it's a hard job teaching the Scriptures to people. Uh, I love my job, but it's a hard job teaching the Scriptures to people, and it's especially hard when sometimes people don't want to hear it. Uh, And it's even harder when people need to be rebuked or need to be admonished, when people are not listening to God's Word and not repenting and not trusting in what God says. And so it's really easy for disunity and, and grumbling and complaining to enter into a church's life. Uh, So Paul says, don't let that happen. Love those who work hard teaching you and leading you. They're doing it for your sake. He says, regard them highly. He means treat them with respect and honour. The the healthy church honours those who work at teaching. That's what leading is in the New Testament, teaching the Scriptures to people. Uh, Not just the pastor or minister, by the way, but anyone who is involved in that sort of leading. Uh, Honour those who labour amongst you in the Lord. Uh, The healthy church supports them, prays for them, cares for them, provides for them. I think one of the great blessings of St George North over the years has been that this is a mark of our church. Or perhaps I'm just blissfully ignorant of all the grumbling and complaining, but, but one of the reasons under God that we have grown right across our parish, one of the reasons we have grown and remained strong is our unity and our support for our leadership. We're not a church where everyone thinks, I've got to be the leader and no one can ever... That's just not a part of our church life and it is a great blessing. Disunity often kills the church and it always makes it ineffective at preaching the gospel. Because believe you me, sadly, all too often, that is not the case in churches. If you've been a part of other churches over the years, you will know churches get pulled apart by people who grumble and people who complain and people who want to push themselves forward and tear other people down. Disunity kills the church. There is a time for disunity in the church. When teachers are not teaching the Scriptures, it is right to rebuke them, it's right to challenge them. When church leaders are being ungodly, it's right to rebuke them, it's right for disunity to happen at that point, but that is not the norm. The norm, and it's such a theme in the New Testament, is that the church should work at being unified, unified underneath the authority of the Scriptures. And that's why it says at the end of the verse, look at it, be at peace among yourselves. Unity and peace is what God wants for His church. This brings me to the second heading, come with me. The second heading is love one another. I put a subheading there, which is love will look different for different people. Uh, love is the mark of the Christian and the church. I hope you know that. Jesus said, how will they know that you are my disciples? And what was the answer? That you love one another. The mark of the church is love for one another in the gospel, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. The sad thing is, I think our world has lost the meaning of what it means to love one another. And you see this in all the public debates of the last few years, where love now means you don't love me if you don't let me do what I want. Love means let me do whatever I want. If you tell me I'm wrong, you don't love me. If you love me, you'll support me and what I do no matter what. Now, anyone who has ever been a parent or a child knows that is not right. 
No good parent loves their child like that. A good parent loves their child by saying, no, if you do that, you'll get hurt. No, that is not what is best for you. At the time, you resent it, but in time, you come to be thankful for it. True love is doing what is best for the other person, whether they recognise it or not. And even if it means pointing out that they are in the wrong, and even if it costs you personally. And that's why I think these verses 14 and 15, come to them now, are so helpful for thinking about how we love one another. Look at verse 15 first, because it's sort of like the summary, the general rule. It says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. That last part of the verse there, that is the definition of what it is to love one another. It's to pursue what is good for the other person. Not pursue what that person thinks is good, but pursue what God says is good for the other person. And not just pursue what is best for that person alone, but for that person as part of God's people. And the radical thing that Jesus added is even do that for your enemy. See, lots of wise men and women over the years have said, love one another. You, you, don't, you don't become great by saying love one another. Lots of people have said that. Jesus said something far more radical. He said, love the people who hate you. Love the people who persecute you. Love your enemies. And you see that here in this verse. See it? See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone. You see, Jesus says, pursue what is good for your brother or sister in Christ, even when they don't deserve it. Even when they're not loving you. Even when they're not showing you the same grace that you're showing them. And I think that is the hardest call that Jesus makes on us. But of course, if you think about it, it's exactly what Jesus did for us. Even though we were his enemies, Christ died for us. He loved us even to the point of dying for our sins, even though we had rejected him and rejected his father. That is the ultimate example of not repaying evil for evil, the cross of Christ. It's the ultimate example of pursuing what is good for the other person, whatever the cost. So that in mind, now come back now to verse 14. And we see that actually looks different as you love people. It will look different as you love different people depending on their circumstances. So in verse 14, he says, and we exhort you, brothers, warn those who are irresponsible. People like to come up with all sorts of theories of who Paul meant as these irresponsible Christians. Uh, and people think, they like to suggest that what it was, was Christians who were so excited about Jesus coming back, that they said, I'm not going to work, I'm just going to sponge off my brothers and sisters in Christ. But I don't think you need to work out who these people are. The word actually, I think, is better translated unruly. Uh, and I think it is just Christians who are not living appropriately. Christians who are failing to live for Jesus. And his point here is, there is a place for warning or rebuking our brothers and sisters in Christ when they are failing to live for Jesus. See, people in our modern world would say, no, if you rebuke me, you don't love me. But actually, one of the signs of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we are doing wrong, is that we care about one another enough to warn one another and admonish one another and rebuke one another. So sometimes love will challenge one another. But sometimes Christians can make that their only mode of relating you see that when Christians become like Pharisees, if you like. So look at the next part, because he then says, comfort the discouraged, help the weak. 
See, sometimes people are struggling in their faith. They're, they're discouraged. They're thinking, is this all worth it? Why, why am I bothering? Sometimes people are just struggling with life and, and things aren't going well for them. They don't need to be rebuked. They need to be comforted. They need to be encouraged. They need to be reminded Jesus is worth following. They need to be reminded that they're saved by grace, even if their life is a mess. They need to be encouraged to stick it out. Thing is, though, it takes real wisdom to work out what type of word a person needs. See, sometimes irresponsibility and ungodliness and discouragement will show itself with the same symptoms. I see this all the time when it comes to people who, who start walking away from Christian fellowship. You see, a person might slowly withdraw from Christian fellowship, stop being a part of the church, stop being a part of gospel teams, that sort of thing, and stop meeting with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if that's because they're arrogant and, and they think they don't need God's people, well, they need to be warned, they need to be rebuked. If that's because they're refusing to deal with sin in their life and they're worried they're going to be challenged, well, they need to be warned, they need to be rebuked. But for another person, it might be because they're discouraged or because they're hurt or because whatever is happening in their life and they need to be comforted, they need to be encouraged. It takes real wisdom and love to work out what type of word a person needs. He goes on, come with me. He says, be patient with everyone. I don't think our word patience actually captures that well enough. We sort of think being patient means not getting angry when someone's two minutes late or something like that. The word here actually has the sense of being long-suffering. What he's actually saying is, put up with rubbish from other people. That's what it means to be patient in the Bible. It means put up with others and keep loving them, even when they annoy you, and even when they grate on you, and even when they don't show you the grace you are showing them. See, our world would say to us, only hang out with people who can help you. Our world would say to us, only hang out with people who affirm you, people who build you up, people who encourage you. The gospel says, no, be patient with everyone. Pursue what is good for everyone. Love everyone. Which brings us to my third heading. Uh, we've looked at being called to love those who lead us. We've been called to love everyone. Uh, well, verses 16 to 21 are actually hard to draw together under one theme, but I've gone with love God and live for Him. And this is where Paul really just does what I did in that first sermon I gave. He just fires off his sort of staccato list of all sorts of things, of encouragements. So let's fly through them. I've printed them out on your outline. Have a look with me. So in verse 16, he says, rejoice always. You'd have a whole sermon on just those two words. Rejoice always. You see, the mark of the Christian, and especially when we meet together, is joy, is rejoicing. Whatever our circumstances, however life is going, we can rejoice. Why is that? Because whatever is happening in life, we know that the God of the universe loves us. And whatever is happening in life, we know that the God of the universe is in control of all things and working for our eternal good. And that is why the Christian says, however bad it is in my life, I rejoice always. Because we know Jesus is coming back and our salvation is totally assured, so we rejoice. You see this at a Christian funeral more than anywhere else. Uh, I go to more than my share of funerals, that's uh, part of my job. Uh, but when you 
take a funeral for someone who clearly did not know the Lord Jesus, it is a horrible, horrible time. Because you have nothing comforting to say. There is no hope for a person without Christ. All there is is grief. But when you take a funeral for a person who everyone there knows loved Jesus and trusted him, it's so different. Even while people cry and even while people grieve, they do not grieve as those without hope, 1 Thessalonians 4. We rejoice even as we grieve because we are Christians and our hope goes even beyond death. That's why we rejoice always. Verse 17, pray constantly. When we pray, how do we usually start our prayers? We say, our Father in heaven. I know I've said this to you before, but never take that for granted. Never rush through the first line of a prayer. When you say that phrase, you are declaring a miracle. That the God of the universe, who by right should judge you, is your Father and calls you His child. You see, we know the God of the universe and we can call Him our Father. We have direct access to the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. So why on earth would we not talk to Him? That's why Paul says, pray constantly. Just all the time, talk to your heavenly Father who loves you. But the thing is, our prayers are not just asking God for things. Often people think of prayer as just sort of giving a list of God do this, God do that. But actually, the mark of the Christian prayer is thankfulness. Thanking God every day for His grace, thanking God every day for the gift of His salvation, thanking God every day for all the good things He gives us, life, health, family, friends. So he says, verse 18, look with me. He says, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's actually a massive statement there, do you see that? What is God's will for you? What is God's great desire for you? It's that you would rejoice always, that you would pray constantly, and that you would give thanks in everything. It's a great verse to take and make your verse for the new year. What do I want to be like? What do I want to be in 2019? I want to be someone who has joy in Christ, who trusts in God, and is thankful for all that God gives me. That is what God wants you to be. That's got what, what God longs to see in us. Let's move on to the next bullet point. Verse 19, he says, don't stifle the Spirit. It's really hard to know what Paul is talking about here. He doesn't give us any context, it's just these couple of words, and he says, don't stifle the Spirit. So some people take it as a call not to stop people doing things that people think come from the Holy Spirit. So often people will say, don't stifle the Spirit, means don't stop someone if they want to speak in tongues, or, or don't stop someone if they want to give a word of prophecy, or, or something like that. And certainly those gifts were present in the early church. So people wonder if the Thessalonians were like this really conservative church, who whenever anyone did anything like that, they said, stop it. Some people might say a bit like, anyway, I won't go there. But if you think of the Corinthian church in the New Testament, you know the one where, where Paul wrote to them and said, you've got to stop all that, so you've got to get back to the Bible, if you like. Well, people wonder if the Thessalonians were the opposite of that, but I actually don't think that's what it is, because he's never talked about the Spirit that way in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and in fact, much more common in this book and in the New Testament is the work of the Spirit to produce 
the fruit of godliness in us. That's the main job of the Holy Spirit. And in particular, to produce that joy and trust and hope in us. So I wonder if verse 19 actually goes with what we just saw in the verses before. You see, don't stifle the Spirit by losing your joy in the Gospel. Don't stifle the Spirit by by failing to be thankful to God. Don't stifle the Spirit by stopping rejoicing. But certainly in the early church, there was a place for prophecy. Uh, They didn't have the New Testament, and so people would come when they uh, met together and bring prophetic words to the church, words of encouragement or challenge. But the thing is, those words were not Scripture, and people didn't treat them as Scripture. They didn't treat a prophetic word as the same as the letter from Paul or as the Gospel of Mark. They didn't have the authority of the Gospel or of an Apostle's Epistle. And so, of course, some Christians would obviously treat those prophecies cynically, not listening to them at all, whereas others would just sort of gullibly accept everything that was said. Well, Paul says, neither of those responses is right. Look from verse 20. He says, don't despise prophecy. So he's saying, listen to them, but, verse 21, test all things. He says test things, meaning testing it, test it against what you know God has said in the Scriptures. Now, we are in a much better position than the early church was. They had one letter of the New Testament. That's all the Thessalonian church had. They had what Paul had taught them when he spent a few weeks with them. They had their Old Testament and they had this letter at this point. We have the whole New Testament. We have much, much more than they did. I think that's why we shouldn't look for prophecy in the same way the early church did. We have what we need in the Word of God, in the Scriptures. But the principle still applies. Don't be cynical and don't be naive. When a preacher preaches, listen attentively. It's the Word of God being taught, but test it against the Scriptures. When someone shares a word of encouragement, listen to them encouragingly, but test it against the Scriptures. When someone shares a testimony of God at work, be encouraged, but test it against the Scriptures. And in fact, it's part of a broader principle that you see there in verse 21. Look at verse 21. He says, hold on to what is good, stay away from every kind of evil. That verse there is a great summary of how to live the Christian life. What should we do? We should listen to God's Word, we should test everything against God's Word, and when God's Word tells us something is good, we should hold on to it. And when God's Word tells us something is not good, it's evil, we should stay away from it, we shouldn't dabble with it, we should flee from it and stay away. It's pretty simple really, isn't it? Hold on to what is good, stay away from every kind of evil. So there's Paul's staccato list of exhortations to end the letter, love those who lead you, love one another, love God and live for Him. But I think Paul doesn't want to end this great letter on a list of commands like that. I don't think he wants people finishing thinking being a Christian is all about what we do. If I just rejoice always, if I just pray constantly, then that's what it is to be a Christian. He wants people to remember more than anything that the gospel is about what God has done for us in Jesus. And so he finishes with this wonderful prayer that reminds us of just that. Just look with me from verse 23. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. When it says sanctify you, it means may God make you holy, may God make you more like Jesus. You see, He's just given us all these ways we can be holy. 
these ways we can live for Jesus. And now he's saying, but it's only by God's work in you that you'll be able to do these things. So it's like he's saying, I've given you all the exhortations, but now I'm going to pray for you that God might work in you to help you live like that. But more than that, he then prays that God will keep us trusting Jesus right till the end. Because that is the thing we should long for one another more than anything else, that God would keep us trusting Christ. So look at verse 23 again. He says, and may your spirit, soul and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our hope as Christians. That's what we should pray for one another, that we will stand firm in the gospel until Jesus returns. And the wonderful thing is these prayers are not just prayed in hope that God might do it. It doesn't say, I hope God will sanctify you. It doesn't say, I hope God will keep you until the end. He prays knowing God has promised these things and God keeps his word. I love verse 24. When my kids were little, we had a Colin Buchanan CD that had this memory verse. It says, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Colin sang it a bit better than that. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. See, that is the God we pray to. Not a God who changes his mind. We pray to a God who makes promises and keeps his word. He is faithful. He will do what he promised. It's a great prayer. And do you notice how even the Apostle Paul wants this prayer prayed for him? Do you see it there? He says, brothers, pray for us also. Troy said before, this is our last normal week before Christmas. We've got all the Christmas services next week and so on. So I think this is a great prayer to finish the year, don't you think? A great prayer to commit to praying for one another. Uh, a great prayer to pray for yourself. And I hope you'll pray it for me too. And in fact, I'm going to pray this for us all right now. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you, the God of peace, might sanctify us completely. And please keep our spirit, soul and bodies sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray this knowing you are faithful and knowing that you will do it. In Jesus' name, Amen.